0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common-sense wisdom and his clear, open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. And the spirit of listening is... uh A kind of openness which isn't so much seeking information or answers, because there really aren't answers out here particularly. Uh, If anything out here, there's just more questions. I have about 500 of them right here at my feet. Um, um, But sometimes the questions outside or the words that you hear remind you of something that is truly an answer that you know in yourself and in your own heart. And I'd like to begin um, by reading you a story in a moment. Um, And the story I want to read is the reminder of a kind of quality of presence that's offered when we begin to attend to our life with respect, with mindfulness, with that compassionate attention that grows through meditation. Meditation isn't an end in itself in terms of what one might do in sitting or walking meditation. It's really more an opportunity to learn a deep way of being that inhabits our body and heart and mind and somehow connects us with that which is timeless beyond the small sense of ourselves to something greater. And particularly in a world that we live in that has as much, still as much conflict and war and betrayal and greed and racism and uh, suffering of different kinds and the normal progression of illness and death um, the only real medicine for those things is the medicine of the transformation of the heart. So here's the first story for tonight. Several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old uh, Tibetan refugee named Tenzin who was diagnosed with one of the more curable forms of cancer. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted and yelled at the nurses and doctors, became argumentative with everyone who came near him. The medical staff was baffled. Then Tenzin's wife spoke to those on the unit. She explained to them that Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese Communist Army for 17 years. They killed his first wife and repeatedly tortured and brutalized him throughout his imprisonment. She told them that the hospital rules and regulations, coupled with the chemotherapy treatment, was giving Tenzin flashbacks of what he'd suffered at the hands of his torturers in prison. I know you mean to help him, but he feels tortured by your treatments. They're causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt at first toward those Chinese soldiers. He would rather die than have to live with the hatred he's now feeling again. And according to our belief, it is very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. He needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. He can't go on like this. So the doctors discharged Tenzin and asked instead a hospice team to visit him in his home. I was the hospice nurse assigned to his care. I called a local representative from Amnesty International for advice. He told me the only way to heal the damage from torture is to tell the story, to talk it through. This person has lost his trust in humanity and feels hope is impossible, the man said. If you are to help him, you must find a way to give him hope. But when I encouraged Tenzin to talk about his experience, he held up his hand and stopped me. He said, no, no, I must learn to love again if I am to heal my heart. Your job is not to ask me questions. Your job is to teach me to love again. I took a deep breath. It was not in my nursing curriculum. (laughs) So I asked him, how could I help you love again? Tenzin immediately replied, sit down, drink my tea, eat my cookies. Now Tibetan tea is strong black tea laced with yak butter and salt. It's not easy to drink, but that's what I did. For several weeks, Tenzin, his wife and I, sat together drinking yak butter tea. We also worked with his doctors to find ways to treat his physical pain. But it was his spiritual pain that seemed to be lessening. Each time I arrived, Tenzin was sitting cross-legged on his bed, reciting prayers from his books. As time went on, he and his wife hung more and more colorful tankas, Tibetan Buddhist banners and deities on the walls. The room was fast becoming a beautiful religious shrine, a temple. When the spring came, two months later, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in the spring. He smiled brightly and said, We sit downwind from the flowers. I thought he must be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me, Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with the new blossoms' pollen that float on the spring breeze. They feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossom seemed a bit daunting. I brought flowers to the house. Then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local nurseries. I called the manager of one of the nurseries and explained the situation. The manager's initial response was, You want to do what? (laughs) But when I explained the request, the manager agreed. So the next weekend, I picked up Tenzin and his wife with their provisions for the afternoon black tea, butter, salt, cups, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books and dropped them off at the nursery. I assured them I'd return at 5 o'clock. The following weekend, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery. The third weekend, they went to yet another nursery. The fourth week, I began to get calls from the nurseries inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. (laughs) One of the managers said, we've got a new shipment of Nicotania coming in, and some wonderful fuchsias, and oh yes, some great Daphne. I know they would love the scent of the Daphne. And I almost forgot, we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy as well. Later that day, I got a call from a second nursery saying they had colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict where the wind was blowing so he could sit properly downwind. Pretty soon the nurseries all around Seattle were competing for Tenzin's visits. People began to know and care about this old Tibetan couple. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring out fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near the two of them as they shopped. It seemed that a community was growing around Tenzin and his wife. At the end of the spring, which then led into the summer, and at the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to his doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer. But the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin that he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, I know why the cancer has gone away. It could no longer live in a body That is filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, from the nursery, from the employees, from all those who were buying flowers, all those people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. And now I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to heal in this way. Doctor, please remember, your medicine is not the only cure. Sometimes compassion can cure cancer as well. So that's the first story for this evening. And it speaks in this world of loss, betrayal, and conflict about another way, and a way that is as true to us as our own body and our breath, a way of compassion and caring and respect for this human life that we've been given. And it has in it a tremendous courage, a kind of amazing courage, the courage of faith to live what one values, to say, even at the cost of my life, I will not nourish hatred in my heart. I simply will not do it. It's like the young Tibetans who have gone to see the Dalai Lama at certain points um, with a great deal of suffering in their hearts to say that our temples have been destroyed and our books burned and our religion and our villages um, uh, taken over and we need to go back and fight. Maybe we should start a brigade like the Afghanis did and get stinger missiles and go in our mountains and shoot down every you know, army, helicopter and airplane and do a kind of guerrilla warfare because what we've done hasn't worked, what you've done. The Dalai Lama described listening to them and his reply was to say, you know, you may be right. Um, I've tried the best that I can to lead our people in a nonviolent resistance And yet there's been so much suffering and so much loss and maybe I have not done the right thing and maybe we need a different leader than myself. Um, If you think that is right, I am willing to step aside as Dalai Lama and as leader of Tibet and you can find someone else because I must also tell you that in my dedication as a Buddhist monk, there's no way that I in this life could ever say yes to violence against a single human being. I simply cannot do that. But maybe I'm not a good enough leader for you, he said, and he wept. Maybe I haven't done it right. Think about the courage that's required for you or for any of us to truly live a life of forgiveness, of compassion, of the Deepest values of our heart in the face of a culture of materialism and speed and in some ways the glorification of violence that we see in the world. Archbishop Cesar Romero said, They can kill me, but they cannot kill the voice of justice. If they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people he said. And he was assassinated. Or Martin Luther King Jr., I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. This Lama Tenzin trusted in some greater truth that we know as well in our hearts. And he began in the simplest way to live in the reality of the present with a kind of openness and faith and an honoring that what needs to be healed gets healed in love. As Krishnamurti says, it is the truth that liberates and not our efforts to be free. He didn't struggle and try to make something a certain way, but instead he gave his heart to what he truly believed in and valued. And then all kinds of miracles happen. You know, the other day when Ajahn Jamyin was here in an afternoon, the, this meditation master healer that some of you saw last week, a young boy came up to him, in the course of the afternoon, who had been um, diagnosed with diabetes and he asked Ajahn and he said, the doctors say that diabetes can never be healed, is that true? And Ajahn Chömyun looked at him and he said, there are so many miracles that no one can explain, you can't say that it will never be healed, you really don't know. I don't know, no one knows. He said, there really are miracles. And this little boy smiled and he said, I know a miracle. And Ajahn Jamian said, you do? He said, yes. He said, some months ago, he said, I have a bowl with a, a fish bowl next to my bed. And I was sleeping and I rolled over and I kicked the bowl over in the middle of the night. I didn't know it. And all the bowl dropped on the floor and all the water spilled out and, and my fish was there on the floor without water all the rest of the night and I woke up in the morning and the carpet was soaked with water. It had been that way a long time and there was my fish under the bed and I picked him up and I put him in a bowl of water and guess what, Ajahn? He was okay. Was that a miracle? We thought so. A person that I know that leads vision quests and takes people way out into the wilderness to leave them alone in the top of the mountains or in the desert for a night or several days or longer to be there with the wild animals and the moon and their own beating heart so that they can search for something that's true and deep in themselves. Said that at first when they took people out on the vision quests, they tried to push them to go further and further, Go way out in the mountains to forget the, about the rattlesnakes and the mountain lions and things. Go as, you know, try to get people push yourself. Go to your edge. Go to the place where you where you're afraid you're going to die and really face it. But then they said at one point they realized that um, when they pushed people in that way, except maybe for young men. You know how young men are; they're their own breed. But except for that. Most people spent their time worried about where they were and what was going to happen to them. So instead, this leader changed and said, you can go as far as you like. You can stay in sight of my tent if you wish, or you can go in hearing distance, or you can go further away up in those trees or in those rocks or all the way up in the mountains. You find the place where it feels like you are ready to learn the deepest lesson for your heart. And you know what happened? People went further out because they were given permission, but not everyone. The people who shouldn't didn't. They stayed close and instead of sitting there being worried and afraid all night, they found the place that was their edge, their place to learn. Maybe it was in sight of the campfire or not so far away. And then they settled down and they really listened. And it's what Tenzin did in that story. He let himself listen and trust in a way that was different than all the messages around him. He listened with his heart, as we can do, as we learn in meditation. Last week, Ajahn Jamnian talked about the practice of mahasati, of the great mindfulness, of allowing ourselves to have awareness of what arises like the waves of the ocean, thoughts and feelings pleasant sensations and painful sensations, joy and sorrow, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. He said, if we practice meditation in a regular way and let ourselves rest in this space of kind attention, then gradually all the stories of the mind and all the difficulties and all the conflicts, they will surface, they will come, but we won't be so lost in them. We won't be so identified with them and there will come a space of understanding and simplicity and settling and healing and a kind of joy that is natural to us. I got a manuscript from an acquaintance from this teacher from Canada named Oriah Mountain Dreamer, who's uh, written some wonderful poetry in a book. This is her new manuscript. And in it, she tells a story about having a workshop that she was going to ask people to um, go for her and do a whole series of spiritual teachings. And the workshop wasn't so full. And She began to get worried about her money and her budget and things like that. Previously, she thought, I only want people to come when they're ready and it's the right thing and I won't ever try to kind of go and recruit people. But the workshop wasn't very full. So what she writes, she writes this story. Uh, let's see. Here we are. She said, so there were a couple of people that were on the fence, should they come to my workshop or shouldn't they? And I thought about it, and I looked at the registration being low, and I decided, well, maybe I'll encourage them a little bit, because I was nervous. I'll be out on the street with a shopping cart, you know, those kind of fears that we have. And so I get the answering machine. Hi, Fran, Oraya here just checking in about your registration at the retreat. There's only a few places left, and I'd love to have you join us if you want. You know, this is a beautiful ceremony. I don't know if it's right or not, but um, it's really gonna be quite wonderful, and you might be one of those people that would really benefit, and so forth. Um, Anyway, let me know, thanks, and I hang up. Nothing I've said is untrue, but I feel a little sick, she says. I know I've let my concern about making enough money in the workshop filling lead me to try to influence this person's decision by a little bit of flattery. I shake my head ruefully to myself and sigh. Should have gone into advertising, or I, a nice bullshitting. I mutter out loud, kind of disgusted with myself, and as the words finish leaving my mouth, I hear the high beep of Fran's answering machine turning off, and I realize... (laughs) frozen at my desk like a deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car that the speakerphone in my desk was on and all of that was on her answering machine (laughs) oh, I panic what to do, Will I call her back can I make it worse, can I I spend hours, I talk to my children they're laughing, I don't see anything funny about it at all. I know I should leave it alone, but I call her back anyway. I leave some other message. My children say, what did you do? You couldn't leave it alone, did you? Well, I called back and made up some story. She won't buy it for a minute, I'm afraid. I'm depressed. My children, neither of them can stop laughing. There are a few things more gratifying to teenagers than hearing one of their parents admit to the kind of stupidity of which they are regularly accused themselves. (laughs) Haven't you learned anything from watching sitcoms, my teenager says? One lie on top of another only leads to worse complications. And suddenly we were all falling down laughing. He's right. It's like a sitcom. I have acted badly, and not just once, but twice. (laughs) Driven first by a fear of money, and then of being exposed to be far less enlightened than I hope to appear, I made a complete ass of myself. I laugh so hard tears come to my eyes, so much for being Ms. Impeccable. All I can say now is it helps to keep your sense of humor if you really want to see what you're doing in this world and awaken. One more story. (laughs) The other afternoon when Ajahn Jumnian was in here and teaching, he said that in his part of southern Thailand, in the Malay Peninsula, in the last number of years, there have come uh, a a fair number of missionaries from the West who are very strongly evangelical, very powerful kind of um, missionarizing and proselytizing Um, Not terribly successfully in the Buddhist countries, because people have a lot of very strong faith, but still trying to do so. And he said one of the ways that they do this is by putting down the local teachers and temples. And he said they do it by hiring cars with loudspeakers to go through the villages with people, advertising when they'll be in an evangelical meeting, and also talking about how terrible the teachers are and the temples and things and that they have something better to offer. And he said, since I have one of the largest and most visible temples in the several provinces around, and thousands of pilgrims come there every week and every month and so forth, I'm a particular um, favorite of theirs to describe. And they tell all kinds of stories that I have secret wives and Swiss bank accounts and illegitimate children and all these things. He goes on and he laughs as he tells this. So he said, one day, not so long ago, actually, I guess it was last year, a man came to see me and he bowed to me, this Thai man, and he said, John," he said, I'm trying to put my daughter through college in Bangkok. We have very little money and she's uh, actually in, just finishing university and going to graduate school and I really wanted to help her, but I have so little money and the missionaries have hired me. And I said, oh, Ajahn and said, well, that's very good. I'm glad of that. He said, yes but they've hired me to be the person that goes from village to village to say terrible things about you in your monastery. Um, I'm the person you may have heard about that goes about to do that, but they're paying me this many uh, thousand baht a month, this many dollars, and it's what I need to put my daughter through the university. What should I do? And he said, do you really not have any other money, any way to make money? And the man said, I don't. And he said, well, then this is a fine way to put your daughter through <laughs> university. He said, they're paying you, paying you 6,000 baht a month or whatever it is. Is that enough? And the man said, yes, it does. It will pay for her and it will all, it, our family. He said, then very fine. He said, but I'm worried about you because there are a lot of people, he said, that, that love me in this community. So I'm afraid that someone might somehow take offense at what you say. And harm you. So here, let me give you. And he gave him this beautiful protective amulet. And let me chant over you and give you blessings. So that when you go out and do your work, no one will harm you. <laughs> and he blessed him and so forth. And he said, and I'll tell if anybody comes at the temple complaining about I said, leave you alone. That you're actually a good man. So the man bowed and took all the blessings and protections. And then went and got in his little truck, and turned on the loudspeaker, started talking about Ajahn Chahmyan and his Swiss bank accounts and what a terrible teacher he was to put his daughter through college. The other day, when I was fortunate enough to be at the teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, one of the people who'd been traveling in his entourage around the country at all these different teachings, um, a Westerner, Who've been involved in? There's this whole series of people who've been editing and helping the Dalai Lama get his books out in English. A number of which are on the New York Times bestseller list, so forth. That you've seen, said, I can't understand it. I am so fried. I am so um, overwhelmed by the intensity of going from place to place and the schedule and the teachings and the energy and the questions that come to His Holiness. I can't imagine how he lives this life. To me, I'm overwhelmed. And I reminded this particular person that the Dalai Lama gets up at 3.30 every morning and does three hours of meditation and purifications and visualizations and prayers and compassion practice and forgiveness practice. And I asked this person, how many hours do they do in the morning before they say, oh, I sleep late, I get up, I brush my teeth, I rush out here for the teachings. So it is here in us, what Ajahn Jamnian did is what any of us have the capacity to do in the face of praise and blame and gain and loss? Because that's the way the world is. We will have praise and blame. We will have gain and loss. We will have joy and sorrow and conflict. We will have illness as the story of Tenzin described. What resources do we have to bring to that? We have the resources of our own inner wisdom, which is there in everyone, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget that inherent dignity and truthfulness and forgiveness that is your birthright. But also remember that it helps to practice because we forget. It helps so much to have quiet times to meditate, to reawaken and reconnect to that place of wisdom. It helped so much to have a, a practice of meditation, of solitude, of walking in the woods, of prayer. It also helps to have community. Part of what Tenzin said healed him was not just the scent of the flowers, but it was the love of all the people that set out the chairs and tables for he and his wife and boiled the water and rolled the carts of flowers over near him. And we take so much nourishment in sangha and community from one another. Don't forget your practice and don't forget how much we can feed one another's hearts. We can remind one another.